You know, when, when we make an argument for what we should be like in the public square, it's because here's what Jesus is asking us to act like everywhere else. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Bill Haslam was a two-term governor of Tennessee and a two-term mayor of Knoxville. In a political climate marked by metastasizing outrage and division, he found success by finding common ground and by treating allies and opponents alike with decency and respect. Bill Haslam is the author of Faithful Presence, The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Bill Haslam, I am so glad that you have made time to be on the Habit Podcast. Well, thank you. I've been looking forward to the conversation. So it's a little different than my typical conversation throughout the day, I should say that. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, too. Uh, so your book is called uh, Faithful Presence. Um, and now remind me of the subtitle. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Yeah. So tell me about this. this uh, why did you choose the title Faithful Presence? What do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, I, well, I uh, sort of shamelessly stole the phrase from James Davidson Hunter uh-huh. uh, with his permission. I did, uh, I did uh, ask him if that was okay. But this whole idea of really trying to communicate two things uh, when it came to the public square. One, that presence matters, that this is not a time to retreat and say kind of a pox on both of their houses. I'm frustrated and exhausted with the whole argument. Yeah. Uh, and then the idea of what would, okay, if we're going to be present, what would it look like to be faithfully present? Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, believers in the public square are known for a lot of things, but I'm not certain we're known for the things that Scripture would tell us to be known for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you talk at some length in this book about the idea that, that we need to, um, that we need to, to think about our politics biblically rather than letting our politics shape our faith. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Just, you know, I, I, I completely agree with that idea. Um, my concern is that, that nobody, no Christian person says, you know, admits to letting their politics shape their faith. We all think it's our faith that shapes the way we think about politics. So how do you, how do you break through or, uh, I think like, like with everything else, there, there's some helpful questions to ask us. And that would be, which, you know, which causes us more anxious moments, the thought that we would um, lose our country the way we want it to be, or that we would lose our God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start with some kind of foundational question. The, the thought of, of the question of, in this whole discussion, am I treating people that disagree with me as created in the image of God? There's some questions I try to ask throughout the book that help us to sort through that. But I would freely admit that your basic premise is true. We all think we're doing it right and the other folks are doing it wrong. And I think the last thing I would do is I really try to um, do my best to use Scripture to back up my argument, to say here's, you know, when, when we make an argument for what we should be like in the public square, it's because here's what Jesus is asking us to act like everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You, you make the point that, that there are um, the non-negotiables, there are non-negotiables about being a person of, of faith. You know, in, as you said, you've already mentioned treating people like they're made in the image of God, these kinds of things. And then there are policies, right. Policy issues that aren't 
that are negotiable, <laughs> right? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, in, I mean, like, let's take what you just said, okay? Scripture's really clear. We're supposed to feed the poor. It's not really clear how we're supposed to do that. Are we supposed to do that through, you know, uh, church-related agencies? Is it, uh, are, we, are we supposed to design government programs to do that? Are we supposed to, you know, give a man a fish or teach a man to fish? We don't, we don't get that kind of instruction. And I think that's why, and I'm going to botch the, I'm not, I'm not even going to try the quote, but I'm going to botch even referring to the quote. But Lewis, C.S. Lewis refers very specifically against having political parties that are seen as Christian political parties. Uh, because he said, for that reason, there's just certain things that there's not a Christian position on. And if we try to say there is one, then we're leaving out those people of faith who have, who have a different position on a non-biblically clear issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So this, this, this may be asking the same question a different way. Confirmation bias is, is such an important thing for writers to to come to terms with right both my own confirmation my, my own tendency to only pay attention to things that confirm what i already believe and also the difficulty in breaking through to another person breaking through their confirmation bias um, the truth is um confirmation bias pays <laughs> you know yes. it's, it's, if if i um if i want more clicks more reads more whatever um well, playing to the choir is a great way to do that. And it, it takes a certain amount of, uh, or it takes a great amount of something beyond, you know, self-promotion or, or great, something beyond a desire to have more readers, more clicks, more money, more whatever, to even um, resist confirmation bias. You you nailed it uh, in, in so many ways there. So, I mean, you start with, again, remember, I'm writing to folks particularly about the, the public square, the political arena, if you will. And it is, nowhere is it more true than it is easy to go get a lot of attention and to get lots of clicks and likes uh, by saying those things that you know a lot of people will agree with and saying them very forcefully and saying them in a way that belittles the other side. You can go do that really easily all day long. But zero is accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just, I mean, like it, the, the phrase I use all the time, I, I'd way rather make a, make a difference than make a point. And it's really, really easy in today's world to go make a point and have a lot of people add exclamation points to your point and yeah. nothing happens. So the question back to what you said is, how do, we, how do we break through confirmation bias for the reader? And then how do we make certain for ourselves that we're not showing it. And I'll start with, uh, I think those were your two questions. I'll yeah. start with the, the personal piece of that. It, you know, one of, one of the interesting things about writing a book about something like this is it's a little like giving a sermon in a church or talking somewhere and then having to be around all the people that you gave the sermon to uh, because you find yourself constantly like, I, I'm not doing so well at that myself. And yeah. I, uh, I decided when I wrote this book that I, I'm probably, I don't know how many other books I'll write. So I thought I'm going to do the, the audio version of it myself. And then, so when it came out, I thought, well, I want to kind of curious, what's that sound like? So, uh, you know, in my, I, I tend to listen to books when I'm working out. So when I was exercising, I started listening to it. And there were times I thought, 
that's really good stuff. I should write that down. Uh, not because I wrote it, just because I realized, like, I, yeah, I'm not doing that so well myself right now. Uh, and so, you know, I, the point I get, I think most any writer would, would recognize or any preacher or anything would recognize, like, you know, it's a lot easier to say this than it is to do it because I realize I'm that way. Like, I want, when I watch the news, when I see something I like, I, I, I like it. And when I'm had a breakfast with somebody this morning and talking about education issues um, and he's, he's a, a high school principal and he was singing my song and I just found myself leaning into him and like, this is great. This, you really know your stuff. And I thought, well, you know your stuff because you think like I do. Um, yeah. It was just not that. So I think that's part of like constantly, I mean, the way you break through it, I think for yourself is make certain you're being exposed to different opinions and thoughtful ones at that. Yeah. For the, 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 the reader and trying to convince folks of that, um, I, you know, the best thing I, I knew to do was give several examples, uh, personal examples of how confirmation bias affects me and hope that somebody could identify with that. And then give some very practical steps of things that you could do to, you know, to, to break through that from listening to different news sources to having conversations with people that you know have a different view than you do. Um, anyway, I tried to have some practical suggestions in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, well, one reason I was really interested in, in looking forward to having you on the show was that, you know, for when it comes to persuasion, you know, I, when I'm trying to write something persuasive, it, there's still a, a real gap between, um, so, well, let me, sort of two things going on here. One is there's a gap between me and the reader, and I don't really know if I've persuaded anybody or not. And secondly, if I, if, if as a writer, I do measure my success in terms of, you know, how many readers I have or how many clicks I get or, or whatever, um, that's all, as you said, that's all about making a point and not about making a difference. And in, in, in your line of work as a politician, you haven't really had the option of of uh, of doing persuasion in any sort of abstract sense, right? We, if you persuade, you see a kind of you know real world result, and if you fail to persuade, you see another uh, real world result in a way that um, for people who who all their persuasion happens on paper, um, it's it's a very different thing for right. us. Right. Uh, um, that wasn't yeah. exactly a question, was it? But well, I, but I get where you're going. What it's, you know, I know you. A lot of your audience are folks who who are real writers instead of people like me who pretend to be one for a short period of time. But it, it's been, to be honest with you, it's been another eye opener. Is it's it's like everything else. You realize, um, you you write a book and you think, oh, okay. Well, I hope this will have some impact and persuade some people. And you realize. Oh, somebody that um, wrote this self-help book is going to sell a hundred times more copies than you do, or what, whatever it is, you know. And you right. kind of there's that sobering thought of, yeah, I'm not certain this is going to make much of a dent in the universe. Yeah. I think the the my answer to myself when I when I when I realized that you know I'm I'm not going to be climbing the bestsellers list anytime. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say anytime soon, but I think just saying anytime period <laughs> uh, is 
this idea of the the hope is to be able to persuade some folks um, that um, it, uh, to, to move where they stand um, and to think of their political and uh, public arena presence. And by the way, I'm not just writing this to people who run for office. This is to all of us because I think we should all be engaged. Yeah. But to help move them toward a position that, that I, I think hopefully re reflects a more biblical position in terms yeah. of how we act. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's like everything. I mean, believe me, I was a mayor for two terms and a governor for two terms. And sometimes you walk away thinking that made a big difference. And sometimes you walk away thinking, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it didn't. I think that's just part of our human existence. And I think the, my, my only thought would be be faithful in what you're called to do. Um, the, the, the harvest uh, isn't up to us. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love something um, when you were when you were mayor of Knoxville and you uh, revitalized a, a downtown that was struggling. Um, your some of your messaging, which I, re I really love and felt really uh, feels like it's relevant to the to the whole project of what what all creativity does is is you you said this is everybody's neighborhood, right? In, in a city. I mean, I sh there's nothing unusual about Knoxville to say that the, the different neighborhoods feel very different from one another. You said, we're going to create this square that's going to be everybody's neighborhood, not just, um, you know. Right. And I loved it. It felt like, it felt like a, a great example of, of, of what you're saying here about bringing the truths, larger truths to bear on our um, uh local worldly uh, truth. The, the, the fact that you are, um, you're saying we are going, that's, that's an act of persuasion, right? To say this is everybody's neighborhood. You know, we're right. going to get everybody behind this by saying this is everybody's neighborhood, which, and by the way, I've been to, I've been to this revitalized downtown in Oxford. I love it. It's, it's a great place. And, and it feels like a place that, that brings people together. And um, I just, I'm, I guess I'm trying to work out some kind of metaphor <laughs> for this is this is what the right kind of um, civic-minded persuasion does. I mean, at the time when I became mayor in Knoxville, we, we really did have this history of, you know, folks in uh, East Knoxville thinking West Knoxville got all the, the good attention and folks that lived in South Knoxville said, I never want to come across the river unless I have to. And we had built up this animosity and this chippiness, if you will. Uh -huh. And we, in the meanwhile, meantime, we have these great bones of a downtown, mm -hmm. uh, a great structure with a market square right in the middle of, in the, in, of town. Uh, and it just kind of worked to say, why don't we put our hearts into revitalizing the heart of the city? Uh, and then we'll try to grow it out from there. And uh, I think there's something about that, that, most folks could easily get behind in it. You know, like I said, it, listen, it, the, the mayor's kind of like the quarterback of the football team gets more credit when things go well and blame when things go bad. The reality is there were some pioneers that had kind of stuck out their head before we ever got there and made, you know, personal investments and risked their own capital and, you know, yeah. and everything else to make it work. But 
I, I do think the, if you want to say a metaphor or whatever, it's this whole idea of, of find, find a, um, a heart of an issue that people can identify with and rally around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in doing that, it, persuasion becomes a little easier. Yeah. I think the interesting thing, if I could take a little side about, you talked about persuasion that, and it's, again, the folks who are your audience is why I think what they do is so important is, unfortunately, we've gotten to the world, it, the political world's gotten to the point where persuasion is not a goal at all anymore. Yeah. It's just more about, I'm going to try to rally my side. I mean, we're, we're about, we're an evenly divided country. And so uh-huh. we've evenly divided. There's two ways I can win. I can try to convince some folks that are in the middle to come to my side. Um, or I can just say, I'm going to double down on my side and get all of them so mad that they will at the other side that they'll go vote. And that's the, the second has become the MO of most political operatives today. And it's really too bad because we've lost this, uh, this value. We've lost putting a value in persuading. Mm-hmm. Any, so from where I sit, it seems like it would be easier to convince a few people on the other side to, how is it that we lost this, this interest in, in finding common ground? Well, uh, I, because I think the, I, I don't wholly know the answer to the question, but my, I would surmise that what's happened is folks have looked around and said, well, that's one way I can go try to persuade those people in the middle to find common ground or um, the numbers work better. If I just go get all the folks on my side who should vote to go vote uh-huh. and to get to make certain the folks on my side go vote. The best way to do that is to get them really mad. Uh-huh. To get them really mad by saying the other side are bad guys. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are two wholly, I can't really do both of those at the same time. I can't persuade the middle and convince the entrenched on my side that the other side are, are bad guys. I can't mm-hmm. do both of those at the same time. And most folks have decided in today's media world, it's a lot easier to go try to convince the people on my side because I can advertise directly to them that the other people are bad guys. Yeah. You, uh, you you mentioned a uh, an interview you did on a cable news network um, that was really short because you were trying to, because they how'd it go ba- basically they were saying so so you pushed through this legislation right it's been a big fight and you're like actually we got along pretty well that you 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 summarized it pretty well <laughs> it was a big we were kind of changing the way we um, our employee system worked mm-hmm. in terms of who got hired and who got promoted and. Similar things that happened in other states, and there had been big, you know, fights and rallies and people showing up at the Capitol. And we'd kind of taken a different approach to try to work some things out on the front end. Uh-huh. When we passed it, it got the, the, the attention of, you know, a couple of the national cable shows. And so they asked if I'd go on to talk about how we did it. And when I came on and they said, well, you know, hey, well, you know what were the riots like at the Capitol? Uh, or, you know, uh, and so we really didn't have, once it became apparent that there was no sizzle there, they literally dropped it. It was like, yeah. yeah. Okay. So look at the time. <laughs> <I> do, <laughs> we got to go. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I got a call once to be on a, uh, one of those shows. I, I published a book about um, C.S. Lewis. And so yeah. uh, 
I, I can't, I, I think it was sort of a war on Christmas special. Yeah. I don't know, something like that. And, and they, they called me and said, Hey, can, let's, let's talk about how, you know, if, if C.S. Lewis were alive today, he'd never get these books published. And I said, well, actually, you know, he, he was in a pretty hostile environment as, you know, himself. And, you know, it, it wasn't anyway, they didn't, they didn't call me back. They said, hey, we're having trouble with getting the, uh, the satellite link together. So this ain't going to work out. And so that was well, it. The reality is in, in that world, outrage sells. Yeah. And it sells really well. And the business model is basically based on outrage. And mm-hmm. so again, that's again, to the folks who are, who are your listeners, I think part of our task is to break through and to try to try to um, re- relight the spark of persuasion uh, yeah. and why that matters instead instead of you know derision uh, works very well in this world uh, persuasion doesn't yeah it's it it feels like uh, there's a not a lot of interest in reality right it, it instead of conforming myself to a reality that I didn't create, I'm doubling down on creating some reality. Um, and the truth is with, with words, you can create certain realities. You can't create ultimate reality. <laughs> I can, I can monkey with the status quo perhaps. Um, right. But I think the message for us in this is we're supposed to be people of the truth. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we're called to be. We're called to be people that speak love and truth at the same time. And it's interesting if you look at the you would for a long time what was kind of thought of as the secular left was the one that said there's no such thing as truth. Okay, mm-hmm. there's everything is it, it's the relative, it's modernism, is etc. Yeah. Now the right is kind of the far right is kind of equally guilty, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a world of uh, alternative facts and of, of uh, you know, if we just say it loud enough, then people should, should believe us. And I think within this world, we, like I said, of all people should be clinging to the idea of true truth. Um, and that, uh, I feel like that should be part of the, part of the, the purpose that we're driving toward. Yeah. And I feel like believing in an ultimate truth, you know, a true, a true truth, as you said, does give me a little, a little latitude in, in, in some, um, because I'm, because it's, because I believe in a truth that I didn't create myself. (laughs) I've I've got some latitude in in the way I deal with other people or the way that I talk about the things of the the world. Well, and that's a little bit, one of the questions you asked me was, you know, how do you, um, we, I can't remember, one of, the, one of your first questions was, well, in, in, a, in a world like this where we're all, you know, all of us think that we're, we're, our faith is determining our politics, no, none of us really think our politics is determining our faith, how do we, how do we, you know, how do you, how do you say, well, where that's really happening? And again, that's part of where I think the, the reality of coming back to, um, having an ultimate truth that you're anchored in mm-hmm. um, that's in my opinion that's based in scripture uh, gives us the that gives us a reference point that is missing for other people that is menacing you said M- missing missing, missing. <laughs> where's this conversation going right, no not <laughs> yeah missing yeah I mean one of the one of the stories I tell in the book is 
uh, from time to time teach classes at university campuses, was teaching at Vanderbilt a year or so ago. And uh, we got into this conversation about is there such a thing that's of truth that's true, you know, relative, you know, regardless of circumstances. And one of the students that was arguing with me had a backpack that was filled with pens about certain rights, you know, rights for this and rights for that. And I said, well, you, you believe in ultimate truth too. And she goes, why, why do you say that? I said, well, you're, you're claiming that there's su uh, such a thing as a right that, that comes from anything beyond an, an existing government. Like if there's a human right, there's a, um, yeah. there's equal rights, et cetera. That, that idea has to come from somewhere. Like I said, that, that in all these discussions, I think should give us an anchoring point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you're, you're right. When you say this, this, you know, I remember when I, when I went to, uh, when I was in graduate school, you know, early nineties and just, you know, it was feeling shocked at the, at the, um, the sort of, uh, postmodern Jacques Derrida, you know, right. the, you know, that, that the idea that just sort of, you know, uh, the experiments in, in perfect, relativism which is as you said doesn't doesn't ultimately work out very much very well um but some of those ideas that were so shocking back then you know people's grandmothers are espousing these ideas now yeah and um um well but, but, i mean that would be back to what you said those ideas that were so shocking that back to we referred to james hunter earlier that would be his point is that you know those ideas that you were talking about in graduate school philosophy class eventually make their way into culture. Yeah. And again, it's one of the reasons why what you do and the folks that you're speaking to do is so important is ultimately, you know, ideas do become reality mm -hmm. and, you know, being out there and competing in the marketplace of ideas, um, I think is an, is an important call today. Yeah. Um, you used a term which I, I, I've been very familiar with the idea. I've seen the idea play out many, many times. Didn't know the term mode of attribution asymmetry. Yeah. Uh, some mighty big words. Why don't you explain those? Yeah, those are uh, those are four dollar words. Uh, <laughs> motivation attribution asymmetry is how much one side thinks the other side's motives are not just wrong. Uh, are, are their 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 uh, their stances are not just wrong, but they come from bad motives. In other words, I don't I don't just disagree with you. I think you have a horrible motive for thinking the way you do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the point I bring up in the book is that today, and this is actually five years ago, so we know it's gotten worse. Motivation attribution asymmetry in the U.S. between Republicans and Democrats is greater than that between Israelis and Palestinians. So this sense of, like said, that the other side are, are wrong and they're bad people. They're not just, mm -hmm. they don't just have a, a different opinion than mine. They're, they're bad people is growing. And part of like I said, is part of the reason I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. um, it, here's a question I've been wanting to ask a, a real politician. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm counting you as a real politician since you've been my, you were my that's governor for eight oxy, years. That's not an oxymoron. <laughs> Uh, do do the professional politicians, do the politicos, are is this um, mode of attribution asymmetry 
as true for politicians as they pretend, as, as it seems to be, or are they just sort of stirring up and, and benefiting from that tendency in the rest of us? Like, I, I remember my, my cousin told me about a time he was driving down the, the highway in, uh, in California and saw in, in a convertible Cadillac, uh, Ric Flair and whoever Ric Flair's enemy was in wrestling. And they were just buddies. They were just going down the road and, and they were, you know, and they, you know, the, the point being the, right. it's all show their, their antagonism. How real is, I mean, is, is the antagonism among the, the professional class of politicians as real as it looks? No, um, I, I, I do think it's, um, I don't know if I'd compare it to the WWE wrestling, but I, I'd say this, you have to remember that politics is an industry like everything else. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of folks who make their living off of that. And they, the, they well, those folks are at the best way to make their living. And if, if you ever get a, a political mail piece, it's wanting you to contribute, you know, and you actually read through the letter. It's most of them are horrible. They're, you know, mm-hmm. what, what they're saying about the other side. Well, whoever's writing that may or may not believe anything close to that. Um, whoever the political consultant was. But they know that that's, that's how you raise money. And uh, the, do the, do, does Ric Flair and whoever his opponent, you know, the political equivalent of that, do they really hate each other that much? The unfortunate reality is in today's world, they probably don't even know each other, even if they're both in the United States Senate. Uh, in the old world, the people went to Washington and they actually spent time there and they got to know each other. and. You know, the, the bad part is maybe they weren't in their district as much, but they mm-hmm. their families moved to Washington. They knew each other. They socialized, et cetera. Today, that, that's probably not true. And in like a state legislator, legislature like the one that I worked with, um, because they put ethics rules in place that prohibit them from, from p- people taking them out to dinner. And there's some good reasons for all that. But some of the downsides, like before I could take, you know, for, you know, if, if you're a lobbyist, you could take five people out to dinner. You can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those, as a result, those five people do something different, but they probably don't get to know each other. My, my point in all that is just most people in today's political world, they don't really know each other personally all that well. They don't know the other side because there's, I need to spend my time either in my district, raising money, or if I have time spending with my family. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're 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 getting close to the end of our time together. So I'm so you're bringing you nicely brought this or bringing this this thing in for a landing because what you're talking about is the difference between the abstract and the concrete, right? If, if I can think of the other side as strictly an abstraction. Right, and I can say whatever I want to about those people, and I and I can believe it. I mean, I'm liable to believe anything about people I don't know. You know, right. um, you know if you tell me that um, that people in in uh, Italy are mostly cannibals, and I've never met an Italian, you know, I, I might believe you. Um, right. Maybe that was a bad example, but but the um, but I. I I appreciate this idea that that as we, and I think this is relevant to to writers and just to human beings that that when we um, when we know people 
it's it's hard to believe some of the horrible things that one side says about the other when you actually know people from the other side. Well, one of the things, I mean, the practical things we did when we were in office is we would have small groups of legislators over to dinner. Uh, mm-hmm. And we had a rule like, okay, you can't lobby your bill. You can't, this, we're not going to have a political discussion. This is, we can talk about anything you want except um, the stuff we're dealing with at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was amazing to me over time how people change. It's like, okay, well, I still think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. But now that I know, you know, that, uh, you know, you're the product of a single, you know, you were raised by a single mother, just like I was, or whatever the, mm-hmm. whatever the circumstance is, there's, there's a different thing. And the, the point I would drive to off of that is this, is I still think in everything, it's like everything else, if you get the relationships right, most things tend to work out from there. Yeah, that's great. Always in these conversations with the question, who are the writers who make you want to write? And if you want to adjust that to who are the thinkers who make you want to, you know, do your job better, make whatever adjustments you want to to that, that question. But I, I'd love to hear who are, the, who are the people that make you want to do what you do. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a pretty big universe there that, uh, of folks. I mean, you know, you you mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. I mean, I still I still read more stuff by Lewis even now. I haven't read, I wouldn't say everything he's written, but a lot of it and go, I still read something and go, wow, that is really, really good. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, that would be a, that would be a first name that comes to mind. Um, Tim Keller is both a friend and a great thinker. And so I tend to, I tend to read a lot of Tim and particularly as it kind of, relates to um, how to, how do we effectively persuade in the, in the world that we live in today. And yeah. I tend, I've gained a lot from him, but you know, I, 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 you actually were nice to give me a heads up on that question. I should have, I should have really worked through it. I would, I could probably keep going with a list of 20 or 30 names of people that, Oh yeah, that's helpful. And one of the things that was hard for me about, writing a book is I did find myself wanting to, Oh yeah, well, so-and-so wrote about that. I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm going to read that. And then while you have this pile of books, it's taller than your head and Mm -hmm. go about getting to work. Yeah. Right. It's uh, a extra research is a great way to procrastinate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Bill Haslam, this has been so fun. Uh, Thank you for, um, thank you for the work that you've, you've done. Thank you for what you've done for this, this state. May your tribe increase. Well, thanks. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I appreciate at least for 30 minutes being thought of as a real writer. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.